Will you take your Bible, please, and meet me in Acts chapter 2. It is hard to believe that by this time next Sunday, I will have been in Africa. It will be my second day in Africa by this time next Sunday. And we will have just uh, worshipped with some of our African sisters and brothers in the Bread of Life Church located in the city of Indola. I am excited, thankful, humbled, a bit nervous, a bit anxious, uh, but incredibly thankful. Thank you, each one of you. Thank you as a church for supporting and sending us. Uh, we, are, we are truly, truly uh, grateful. Uh, I'll miss you. We will miss you. I'll pray for you. And I ask that you would pray for me also and for our entire team. Uh, I love how Jan said it, and I want to just echo that, that um, I know that God is already working in Africa. God is doing a great work there, and my prayer is that we would simply uh, enter in and walk alongside the Lord in the good works He has already prepared for us. So, um, so Jan's prayer in terms of being present in the moment, not dwelling in the past or living in the future, but present in the moment as we engage and interact with the people there has really been the prayer of my heart these past many weeks. And I would ask that you would join me in that prayer so that I could be of some encouragement, we could be of some encouragement to their faith, and that they would be of great encouragement to ours. As you already know, I'm going to Africa because I was asked to speak on the subject of discipleship. I have prepared six messages from six different texts to share when I arrive, some of which I've already shared with you. Over the past few weeks, we've considered the call to discipleship, the need for discipleship, and some distinguishing marks of a Christian disciple. We've considered how discipleship affects our lives and our world, but how does it affect our churches? How does discipleship impact the local church, and how are local church members involved? These are important questions, and for answers, I'd like us to step back in time together this morning to the very first century and visit the very first church. Though that church was in a different city than ours, a different region, and even on a different continent, the principles upon which it were founded, on which it was founded, remain sure and steady. Though nearly 2,000 years have passed, the practices of that earliest church are just as applicable and equally effective. Though the culture there and then was vastly different than ours in many ways, God's purposes, are remain, God's purposes remain unchanged. 
So using the last paragraph of Acts chapter 2 as our guide, I want us to briefly tour that first congregation of Christian disciples. For in so doing, we discover that as its people embrace God's purposes, the local church becomes a disciple-making community. Say that again. As its people embrace God's purposes, the local church becomes a disciple-making community. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Talking about that church, it reads, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for these moments we share this morning. And oh my goodness, what an amazing time that was in human history, certainly in church history, as we see what you're doing and we see the birth of the church and then all that you accomplished in and through the church. And so this morning as we revisit that congregation and reread this text that is so familiar to many of us. I pray that you would give us fresh eyes and fresh ears to see and hear the things you would have us see and hear. Would you enable our ability to receive all that you have for us this morning so that we might not only understand church life, but in fact that our life as a church would continue to grow and flourish. For your name's sake, for the spread of your glory in and through the church, and for the great good of your people. We ask it through Christ. Amen. I want to quickly recap verses 1 through 41. Just before His ascension, Jesus gathered His disciples to give the Great Commission. You know this. By which He charged them to go and make more disciples. He told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit came, just as He promised, the apostles, empowered by the Spirit began speaking in the many languages of the people who were gathered in Jerusalem at that time. Amazed by this, the assembled crowds were trying to piece together exactly what was going on when Peter stood 
to preach Christ and share the gospel of Christ. Conviction fell upon the hearts of many as Peter called them to repentance and faith. And by day's end, we're told, about 3,000 souls were saved to God and welcomed into the church. Now, how did the church respond to these things? That's, that's the question that's rolling through my mind. Now, you can imagine being there on that day, in those days. What can we learn from this church's example? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 is a timeless passage, and I see at least five practices here that describe a disciple-making community. The first is this. The church was characterized by commitment. Verse 42 describes a spirit of devotion that marked that congregation, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were committed to learning, to the apostles' teaching. The apostles had walked with Jesus and learned from Jesus. They knew Jesus personally and therefore taught the church about Jesus, revealing Christ even from the Old Testament as Peter did earlier in his sermon when he quoted from Joel 2 and Psalm 16. So having already placed their faith in Christ, these people were hungry to learn more of Christ. And they were committed to Christian fellowship. Not just to fellowshipping, notice, but the fellowship. They had become part of something much bigger than their individual selves. That's important. They were part of a new community the church of Jesus Christ. And they were committed, we're told, to Christian fellowship. They were committed to the breaking of bread. They shared meals in each other's homes. And together they shared the Lord's Supper, just as Jesus instructed them to, which is even more meaningful and intimate. And they were committed to the prayers. Not just prayer in general, but the prayers. Apparently, there were common prayers and formal prayer gatherings, regular prayer gatherings to which the church members were devoted. By their devotion to teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, this was a church characterized by commitment. Secondly, the church gloried in the grace of God. I want to ask you, has your amazement of God ever left you feeling small by comparison? Creation often has this effect on me and on us. There have been times in my life when the sheer beauty and absolute wonder of creation has taken my breath away because in those moments I get just a glimpse of the mind-blowing, heart-melting, knee-bending power of God. Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word awe here is phobos, which actually means fear. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord can mean be afraid and or be amazed. And in this instance, it's both. The people were truly amazed at what God was doing to the point that awe and reverent fear fell upon every soul beholding the grace of God in their midst. They gloried in His work together. Thirdly, the church was united as one. We read in verse 44 that all who believed were together and had all things in common. Together. That word speaks to their unity and the word common to their oneness. Though many in number, they were a unified whole. And as the New Testament unfolds, we find three very specific metaphors that describe a church, describe the church like this. In 1 Peter 2, the church is portrayed as one temple of many stones. Jesus is the living stone, and all who come to Jesus become living stones as well because our identity is rooted in His. We're not isolated or independent stones, but stones divinely placed one by one, one person at a time as each person comes to Christ. One stone on top of the other and next to the other, each essential to the well-being of the whole. Each supports the other and together they form one structure, we're told. A spiritual house consisting of individuals who have come into relationship with God and are united by God for relationship with one another. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 12, the church is pictured as one body of many members. Just as the body is one and has many members, Paul says, so it is with Christ. God gives to each member specific abilities, but the abilities profit the body only as they function together. If the whole body were an eye, Paul elaborates, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? If all were a single member, another way to say that is, if we all did as we pleased, where would the body be? The church is not a random collection of people any more than the body is a random collection of parts. And then in 1 Timothy 3, the church is described as one family of many members, the household of God. As you read 1 Timothy, you realize that it's a letter in which family-like language is very common. As the aged apostle instructs his young pastoral protege on how to relate with others in the congregation, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Paul is using words that pertain to family. And though believers are saved to Christ individually, individualism is never his intent. Instead, those who are born again are born into the family of God. And then fourthly, we find that this church loved generously. Notice how the congregation cared for each other in verse 45. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now at this point, some have accused this passage of promoting communism or a communist mentality, but clearly this isn't the case. The giving and sharing described here was entirely voluntary on the part of the members and not at all compelled by the government, not even the leaders of the church. And that the people owned personal possessions to give shows that they gave as they so desired. Now what this is describing is a church of generous people. They were generous because they had learned generosity from God, who was generous with them. As needs arose, they met them. To love like this means bearing each other's burdens, which requires sacrifice and personal commitment. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus once taught, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, with what kind of love did Jesus love them? He loved them generously, right? And with great sacrifice. And this church followed suit. And then fifth and finally, the church worshipped and witnessed daily. The church worshipped and witnessed daily. And day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They met each day, each day, at the temple and in their homes, formally and informally, in large gatherings and in smaller groups. They were thankful They were glad, they were generous, and they worshipped God together, praising God, and don't miss this, having favor with all the people. I love that phrase. That they had favor with the people is a testament to their witness and even to their winsomeness. And as the book of Acts unfolds, we we actually see evidence of this. In chapter 4, for example, when Peter and John are arrested and appear before the council, the authorities hesitate to punish them because the people were praising God for them and all that was happening around them. In chapter 5, we're told that many signs and wonders were being done in and around Jerusalem which caused the people of Jerusalem to hold the believers in high esteem. A revival was very much sweeping through the land as the people of God were out in the community ministering in the power of God. And the result was verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Devotion, awe, unity, love, and daily worship and witness. This is what characterized that church. 
Theirs was a disciple-making community. So how can we today, 2,000 years removed, different part of the world, different culture, how can we today cultivate similar communities in our churches? And what I'd like to do now is simply take each of these five practices and suggest a simple application from each one. So regarding devotion, combat consumerism with commitment. Combat consumerism with commitment. You know, back in the day, in my day, back in the 90s, when I was a new believer, there was a Christian-themed t-shirt that was making the rounds and promoting a well-known phrase at that time. Pictured on the front of the shirt was a school of fish. Let me know when you begin to remember this shirt. The school of fish swimming in one direction while there was a lone fish, a single fish, in the shape of the Christian ichthus that swam in the opposite direction against the others. Go against the flow was the tagline to the shirt, which appealed to my generation for more than one reason. (laughs) Most of us in the church realize that identifying with Jesus will mean swimming upstream against the cultural currents of the world. Most of us get that. We understand that the ways of the world are fundamentally opposed to the way of Christ, so we get the fact that walking with Jesus is taking the narrow path, not the wide road that leads to destruction. So I expect to go against the flow of the world. I expect that. I know what I'm in for. But what surprises me is that now we're having to swim against the cultural currents of consumerism that characterize many that characterizes many churches and churchgoers. The church shopping mentality plagues our day and actually teaches us, convinces us, that the church exists for us, not us for the church. Some view the church, I've shared this before, some view the church like a one-stop market that exists to provide for their many wants and perceived needs like the spiritual version of their local Costco, complete with a no-questions-asked policy when they decide to move on. Now, I know you get this. I know you get this. So this may not apply to you directly, but it applies to all of us indirectly, because if we're going to return to the biblical model, it means combating consumerism with commitment. Number two, 
regarding the grace of God. Respond positively to what God is already doing. Respond positively to what God is already doing. This chapter in the entire book of Acts is not as much about what the church was doing, but what God was doing in and through the church. The Holy Spirit came in power, verses 1 through 13, and He empowered Peter to preach Christ, verses 14 through 40. God saved thousands from sin and death through the preaching of the gospel, verse 41. The church was born, and as we've read in verse 47, it was God who added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's my encouragement for you. Like those people in that church, pay attention to the signs of God's work already. When people repent and place faith in Christ, that's a sign. When a person is baptized to declare publicly their love for Christ, that's a sign. When a person grows in Christ because they're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that's a sign. When a person sins less and serves more, that's a sign. As a pastor, every time I hear of a broken relationship that's mended or or a need that's been met, or a small gospel victory in a person's life, I'm reminded that these are signs that God is working wonders in our midst. And sometimes all it takes is to slow down in glory in His grace. Maybe the encouragement for you this morning is to become more aware of what God is already doing. Not looking forward to what He will do. More aware of God in your circumstance now, today. More aware of God's work in your life now. God's work in your church now. God's work in your community now. Maybe the encouragement you need is not necessarily for God to do more, though He always does more than we can even think or imagine, but maybe what's needed is to respond positively to what He's already doing. Number three, regarding unity and oneness, see yourself as a necessary part of a unified whole. A few years ago, Sally and I went to Maui, our first trip to Hawaii together. And I could go on for hours about that trip and how good it was for us and what we did and saw. But for now, I just want to share with you one very brief but relevant memory. When preparing this message, God reminded me of a particular tree in Maui. The Banyan Tree, located in Banyan Tree Park on Front Street in the town of Lahaina. Imported from India, this specific tree was a gift to Christian missionaries in 1873. 
a mere eight feet when first planted. It has grown to over 60 feet tall, while its canopy now covers about two-thirds of an acre. But what makes the banyan tree truly impressive is its root system. As the tree grows, roots extend from branch to branch and limb to limb, falling on occasion to the ground where they dig into the soil to form new trunks. The banyan in Lahaina now has at least 12 major trunks, some of which measure multiple feet in diameter, in addition to its huge initial core. So even though it looks, as you look through that park, even though it looks like there are at least a dozen trees in that park, it's actually just one. Because of this complex interconnectedness, it's estimated that over a thousand people can congregate at one time under the shade of that one banyan tree. Like the banyan I saw in Maui, the church is to be a place of interconnectedness and growth, where we are characterized by the words together and common, like the church described in this passage. When you became a Christian, something happened to you besides having your sins forgiven and being made right with God. You became a child of God, and therefore God made you part of His family, placing you in the church while shaping and gifting you for use in the church. We don't lose our individuality, not at all, but our individuality, much like the roots of the banyan, should lead not to independence, but rather mutual interdependence by which we each view ourselves as a necessary part of a unified whole. Yes? Yes. Number four, regarding love. Invest generously in each other's lives. In the book Multiply, a New York Times bestseller, Francis Chan voices the obvious before urging the necessary. saying, we don't like getting involved in other people's problems. I'm just glad that somebody said it. (laughs) We don't like getting involved in other people's problems. Our own problems are messy enough. Why complicate things by taking on other people's junk. But the reason is simple. God calls us to help other people. He created us to function this way. Your problems are not just your problems, ultimately. They belong to the church body that God has placed you in. You are called to encourage, challenge, and help the other Christians in your life And they are called to do the same for you. If you wait until all of your own issues are gone before helping others, it'll never happen. 
This is a trap that millions fall into, not realizing that our own sanctification happens as we minister to others. In your walk with Christ, there are always people, I would even say in this room today, there are people a few steps ahead of you from whom you can learn and there are people a few steps behind you who can learn from you. In any church, we can always look around and ask ourselves, who in this congregation can I help disciple? And who in this congregation can help disciple me. You can always tell when a disciple-making culture begins to shape a church by the way that its people begin to shape each other. And then number four, uh, where are we on? Number five. Regarding daily worship and witness, allow your praise to inspire your proclamation. The ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon is well known. Called the Prince of Preachers for good reason, Spurgeon stood before thousands each week and faithfully ministered the Word of God to great effect. But perhaps what isn't as well known is the ministry of his congregation at the London Metropolitan Tabernacle. The Metropolitan Tabernacle wasn't simply a preaching station. It was never intended to be. Though nearly 6,000 people gathered twice each Lord's Day for worship, the church was far more than its Sunday services, far more than its preaching, and certainly far more than its preacher. Theirs was a congregation on intent on serving their community and seeing the lost saved. And from that congregation flowed no less than 50 different streams of ministry. They cared for orphans. They fed the poor. They taught Sunday school in the slums of London. You name it, and that church did it, serving the Lord and the people of London. In fact, the London Metropolitan Tabernacle planted numerous churches in the surrounding area and even beyond, many of which still exist today. Now, when I read accounts like these, and more importantly, when I read passages like this, I'm reminded that God calls us to something bigger. That our purpose in this world involves more than our own interests, more than our own preferences. That the church is the means by which God manifests His grace and His glory in people's lives that our worship should spill forth into our witness. I'm reminded necessarily so that we have a far greater impact together than any one of us can have alone. The first church was a disciple-making community that grew and flourished as its people carried 
the Christian movement forward. So combat consumerism with commitment. Respond positively to what God is already doing. See yourself as a necessary part of a unified whole. Invest in each other's lives generously and allow your worship of God to inspire your witness in the world for as its people embrace God's purposes, the local church indeed becomes a disciple-making community. Amen. Amen. God, thank you for these moments. And will you continue to shape and help us, not only each of us individually, but us as a unified one, help us to apply these things to our lives and to our church. It's amazing, actually, to think that we're here today because of the ministry of that church in Acts chapter 2. And what you did through that church. That is an amazing reality. And so help us to do our part in receiving and caring for and passing on the gospel so that even future generations could look back and acknowledge that your work here among the people of East Parkway is still bearing fruit. Do that, we ask, for your name's sake. Amen.